Today's sermon uh, text is going to be from Numbers uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among these who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you, brought us, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell all the inhabitants of the land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Everybody's well this morning? Yeah? Well, all right. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So glad to see everyone this morning. Uh, if you are visiting here with us, uh, let me say welcome to you. So glad that the Lord would bring you uh, to fellowship with East Point Church this, this morning. Pray you've been encouraged in some way that we've um, greeted you and welcomed you here. Pray that um, the Lord still has more in store for you as we go into his word. Pray his spirit would come and indeed encourage, challenge, and comfort your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ that we praise and sing about here at East Point Church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, um, Brother Jesse has read the word of God for our hearing. Let us pray that uh, now the Lord will make it effectual in our hearts as we meditate upon it further this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, once again, that your goodness and your graciousness to us has overwhelmed us, reminded us that we are your people and you are our God, that you love us and you care for us. Your word reminds us that you delight to bless us and to keep us and encourages us to walk by faith and not by this morning, Lord, we do ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you 
that we might behold you, that we might trust you more and more. Turn away from ourselves, Lord. Turn to Christ in faith. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are coming to the end of our time in the life of Moses. And um, last week we saw that they had the children of Israel in the leadership of Moses, right, that um, had journeyed to the promised land, and God had determined that they would um, be able to go into the promised land if they would only trust him and believe in him. And last week we talked about the idea of them walking by faith and how they had journeyed these some two years, 24 or so months from, from Egypt up until Canaan, up until the a promised land. And you can imagine, beloved, and I hope we can imagine this morning that transporting, transporting that many people over that distance and over that amount of time was no doubt a testing and a trial within itself. And I am quite confident that by the time that the nation of Israel had reached the borders of the promised land, the borders of Canaan that the Lord had determined that he would bring them to, Moses, Moses was ready to drop these people off in the promised land. He had felt the weight. He had felt the weight of this journey like no one else. He had felt the weight of leading these people over this time. And he, like anyone, anyone, perhaps more than anyone, pleased and thankful to have finally reached their final destination. But as soon as they reach it, they discovered what most of us know is to be true, beloved. And that is that you don't enter into the blessings of God without opposition. You don't receive and you don't appropriate the promises of God without opposition. The enemy, the enemy is not allowing you and I to enter into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his blessings with ease. And in fact, the, the Bible reminds us that there's trials and there are testings and temptations along the way. In fact, these trials and these temptations are often the result of, of God's own doing, for God uses them. God uses these trials. God uses these these testings to, to thin out the ranks. He often uses these times of testing and, and trials to separate the sheep from the goats, to separate the wheat from the tares. God is pleased oftentimes to weed out, to weed out the pleasure seekers and the convenience seekers. If any of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress, and I hope that 
all of you have at some point or another. You might recall that Christian, as he is leaving the city of destruction, he has a friend who travels with him. His friend name is Pliable. And Pliable is pleased to go along with Christian as Christian is telling him about this grand journey that they're going to take to the celestial city and where the prince of that city is waiting for them with blessings and, and glory and honor. And Pliable is excited to go along the journey until they reach their first testing and trial at the Slough of Despond. And when they reach the Slough of Despond, we are told that pliable turns back. And John Bunyan says that we, we hear from him and we see him no more. Beloved, pliable was a faithless because the Bible tells us, right, and Matthew 24 and 13, that true faith perseveres. Those who will be saved endure. They endure. They persevere. That is true faith. True faith battles. Battles unbelief. True faith, therefore, pleases God. As we saw last week, without faith, it is impossible to please God because God is most pleased when we believe and trust in him. And if that is the case, beloved, if true faith, if persevering faith, if trust in God is what pleases God, then there is nothing that displeases God more than unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief, beloved, is a sin. And in fact, I would suggest to you that there is no more destructive sin than unbelief. Unbelief is the, was the root at the first sin in the Garden of Eden. God had told and Adam and Eve and given them instructions, and the enemy comes in, and the enemy says... Did God actually say? And then the enemy says, oh, no, Eve, you will not die. And her sin was that she failed to believe God. And she walked in unbelief, beloved. Unbelief is not just at the root of the first sin. The Bible also tells us that unbelief is the ground for eternal damnation. It is the grounds for eternal condemnation. In John chapter 3 and verse 18, the Bible reminds us of this, beloved. Who, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed. Why do people go into an eternal condemnation, beloved? They go because of unbelief. Don't believe. And unbelief manifests itself. It manifests itself in disobedience 
which leads to idolatry. One preacher put it this way, he says, faith is a shield that beats back the fiery darts of Satan. So unbelief is the shield that beats back all the good motions of the, of the Spirit of God. Faith is the victory with which we overcome the world, and unbelief is the victory by which the world overcomes us. And as Israel, as we saw last week, as they were posed, they were poised to go into the promised land and to receive the fullness of God's blessings for them. They were challenged once again with that old enemy, unbelief, unbelief. text this morning kind of raises the question for us. How would they fare? Or better yet, how are we doing this morning? Last week, last week we were challenged to and encouraged to walk by faith. Our text this morning is the other side of that coin. It is both a lesson and a warning in unbelief. As we seek to walk faithfully in the promises of God, what does unbelief look like? How are we being challenged with it? And what are the consequences of it, beloved? And our text reminds us this morning, it shows us in the life of Israel, we see the, the character of unbelief. In this episode, this most critical episode, we not only see the character of unbelief, but we also <clears throat> are given a picture of the compassion of God toward unbelief. But then we are reminded that there are consequences for unbelief. beloved. There are sobering consequences for not believing God. What's the character of unbelief, and how do we know it when we see it? Well, it's demonstrated here in our text in verses 1 through 4, chapter 14. The, the congregation of Israel, they remember they were given two reports. They were given two reports. And when they heard the false reports of the ten spies, the Bible tells us, does it not? that they therefore rejected the faithful report of Joshua and Caleb. They listened. They listened to the false report. And rather than faith and victory, the Bible says that they begin to walk in unbelief and defeat. Unbelief and defeat begin to set in. And what is the character? Of it. The Bible says then in, in verse 1, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. When they heard the false reports of the ten spies, <coughs> they all together cried 
aloud, and they all together wept. Because one of the characteristics of unbelief, beloved, is that it is contagious. It is contagious. They were moved. They were moved not by the reports of Joshua and Caleb, but they were removed by the report. They were moved by the reports of these ten spies. These ten spies were afraid. <clears throat> they were afraid of what they saw, <clears throat> and that fear, therefore, began to spread throughout the congregation. Because, like a disease, beloved, fear is communicable. We communicate it one to another. It easily is transferred to others. Unbelief and faithfulness soon follow. Faithless people attract faithless people. Complainers and disgruntled people hang out with complainers and disgruntled people. Unbelief is contagious. It spreads. On the night that our Lord was crucified, the Bible tells us that he stood in front of Pilate. And he stood in front of Pilate, and Pilate had tried him, and Pilate found him not guilty. But as he begins to tell the crowd that Jesus, he finds no fault with Jesus. The Bible says that the crowd cried louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate hesitated, beloved. He did not want to send Jesus to his crucifixion. And he says, I will offer you another. I will offer you Barabbas. And they cried even louder and more and more. No, crucify Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. You know what the Bible says, beloved, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 21, it says, And their voices prevailed. Why? Because, beloved, unbelief is contagious and it spreads. And by the end of that evening, the whole crowd was crying, crucify Jesus. What voices this morning do you listen to? Beloved, I know me. I am susceptible to unbelief. And therefore, I seek to try to be careful to keep faithful voices around me. In fact, this is what the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 63. <clears throat> I am a friend to all who fear you, all those who keep your precepts. These are the people that I want to be around. These are the people I want to have in my inner circle. These are the people that I want to be hearing in my voices and sharing in my intimate conversations. Because birds of a feather flock together. I 
I like what Job said to his wife, beloved. If anybody had any reason to enter into unbelief, it was Job. If there was anyone who had a reason to complain, it was Job. If there was anyone who had a reason to move into unbelief and faithlessness, it was Job. And when his wife saw all the suffering that he was going through, he to- she told Job what? Curse God and die. You have every reason to engage in unbelief. You have every reason to doubt. You have every reason to move away from the faith. And beloved, Job in all of his misery and suffering looked at him and he said, what you talking about, woman? What are you talking about? You don't sound anything like my wife. Get that faithless talk out of here. Shall we accept good and not bad from the Lord? Beloved, don't get it wrong. Unbelief is contagious. And you and I need to take care that we are cultivating faith in our lives and in the lives around us. Because faith, uh, unbelief is not only contagious, but this text reminds us too that unbelief is complaining. Complaining, complaining, complaining. These people grumbled against Moses and Aaron They complained against God and his ordained leadership. And beloved, this wasn't the first time. I mean, like little children on a long journey, they had been whining and complaining the whole time. Just whining and complaining. They complained at the Red Sea. They complained after they crossed the Red Sea. They complained about the water. They complained about the food. They complained about the accommodations. They complained about the leadership. They complained and complained and complained. It's too hot. Are we there yet? What are you doing? What are y'all doing up there, Moses? Do you know where you're going? Why don't you ask for directions? Beloved, unbelief clouds the thinking. It confuses the emotions. And it leads, it leads to a spiritual death. Complaining is rooted not in the words that we say. Complaining is about the sickness of the heart. Israel is heart sick. And the words are just a manifestation of a heart of hearts that have been hardened by unbelief. The Bible reminds us, right, in Luke 6 and verse 
and 45, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what does it speak? It speaks faithlessness. It speaks faithlessness. For it throws shade at God. Treats him with contempt. Things go wrong all of a sudden. You don't have what you want or you lose something that you think that you should have or you deserve. And all of a sudden, you begin to walk and speak faithlessness. Notice what it says in verse 3. What do people say? Why? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall on the sword? Our wives and children will become plundered. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? You can hear the faithlessness in this complaining. They're not just complaining, beloved, but there is unbelief in the midst of this complaining. And this unbelief throws shade at God because what they're saying at this moment is that, God, you're ignorant. You must not understand a no. Or if you do understand a no, then you're just unkind. Or God, you're cruel. Or or maybe you're not cruel or maybe you're not unkind. Then if that's not the case, then you're weak. You're impotent. Or if you're not weak or you're not impotent or you're not cruel or not unkind, then maybe you're just disinterested. Or better yet, maybe you're a liar. You see how serious this is, beloved? You begin to move into unbelief and to complain and manifest a faithlessness that impugns the character and the integrity of God. It's not just faithless. It's also forgetful. Forgetful. See what it says in verse 11? We move down to verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? Then he says, How long will they not believe in me in spite, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Beloved, it is amazing. It is amazing to me how easy unbelief leads to spiritual amnesia. Your complaining and my complaining is not just a manifestation of faithlessness. It is a manifestation of forgetfulness. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, slavery is better than freedom. Because there's a little opposition, because there's a a little loss, because there's a little injury, All of a sudden, because you suddenly get a little bit offended, now slavery is better than freedom. All of a sudden, Pharaoh is better than Moses. All of a sudden, Egypt is better than Canaan. When life, beloved, doesn't go how we want it to go, suddenly, for some reason, we sit 
and we begin to remember, and how we remember it, we remember that a life of sin was better than what it really was. I can tell you how many times beloved people have sat down and I'm talking to them and they begin to talk about their lives prior to coming to Christ as if it was something now that they're missing. Because all of a sudden it got hard. That trusting God got difficult. That walking by faith got tough. Suddenly, suddenly, the burden of sin is better than the promises of God. It's crazy, beloved. It's crazy. Unbelief. This is what it does. Throws the shade at God and complains because life is not a bowl of cherries. Because life is not a bowl of cherries, we get faithless. Because all of a sudden, every day is not sunny and bright, we get forgetful. Because there is pain and loss in our life. But I want to suggest to you this morning, beloved, that the pain is not a result of God being powerless. That the loss does not mean that God has left Beloved God is seeking to demonstrate whether or not there is faith in Israel. God is going to weed out the weeds and the tares. He's going to weed out the unbelief and the goats. And this is why it's important, beloved, that you and I learn to sing like the songwriter says that I thank God for the mountains, and I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms that he brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God can do. That's the issue. Unbelief keeps us from getting there, beloved. Was holding back Israel. There's an interesting thing in the midst of this unbelief that is manifested in Israel, beloved, that you see, you and I see the compassion of God toward the unbelief. This is, this is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing, beloved. God had had enough of this. I mean, beloved, they have been complaining for the, over two years, for the last 24 or so months. As they have been walking this journey from freedom to glory, they had been complaining and whining the whole way. And notice what God says again in verse four, uh, chapter 14 and verse 11. God said to Moses, how long, how long, how long, how long am I going to put up with these people? How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me? How long will they despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Notice what God does here, beloved. He equates unbelief with despising him. This is what we said. This is what unbelief does. 
It treats God as ignorant. It treats God as unloving. It treats God as uncaring, as weak, as impotent, and disinterested. It, it says that God is a liar. The Bible tells us, then, God became angry. God became angry. He had had enough with these people. He had reached the end of the line. Now, I want us to think about that for a moment. I want us to think about that for a moment. Because we don't tend to want to think about the fact that God has a limit. We don't like to think about the fact that eventually God will reach a point where unbelief and faithlessness he will tolerate no more. We don't want to think about or talk about the fact that God gets angry. But the reality of it, beloved, is that God is angry with sin. God is angry with sinners. And he is patient and he is kind. But he will not and he cannot just over. Look, sin. And he definitely, beloved, has a limit to those who hold him in contempt. And yet, even in his anger, God is good to sinners. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you have thought about that. Okay? But I want you to think about that with me this morning. That even in his anger, even in his righteous indignation, God is good to sinners. Now, the reason I want you to think about that is because if you are seeking to be faithful, that is what you are seeking to do. This is what I have been challenged with most of my life. And walking with God and, and being married to my spouse and raising my children, I am seeking to understand, like God, how you can be good, how you can be strong, and yet at times angry. How you going to be good and yet have righteous indignation at wrong? How are you going to be good and strong and kind and disciplined? Beloved, you're like me, and I know you are. You get it wrong. You get it wrong. You get it wrong. You get it wrong. God doesn't. He is strong, he is good, and when he must be, he gets angry, and he disciplines his people. And you see that here this morning. Moses knows, he knows God is angry, and yet he also knows that God is kind, and God is strong, and God is good. 
God's got every reason to be angry. He's got every reason to move in judgment. These people have been whining and complaining and throwing shade at God for over two years now. And God has been nothing but gracious and kind to them. And now God has reached the end of the line with them. And Moses knows that these people stand rightly condemned before God. And so what does Moses do? He appeals to the goodness of God. He appeals to the goodness of God. It says in verse 13, Speaking, speaking of what people will hear if God moves in the judgment against his people. He says, they will tell the inhabitants of the land that they heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by night and in a pillar of fire by, and a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Moses, Moses, before he even pleads on Israel's behalf, he wants God to know that he knows that God has been good. Lord, you've been good to us. We know you've been good to us. You delivered us from Egypt. Notice what it says. He brought them out of Egypt. You've been good to us. Not only did you bring us out, but you remained in our midst. God, you have been with your people in the midst of them. But not only did you bring us out, and not only did you stay in our midst, but you have been gracious and you have smiled on us. For you, your face did not turn away from us, but we have known you face to face. And you have lifted up your countenance upon us, and you have been gracious to us. But not only did you bring us out, and not only have you been in our midst, and not only have you been gracious to us, but Lord, you didn't leave us. You have led us moment by moment, day and night, night and day. Lord, you have been good to us. And Israel has earned none of this. Beloved, it is good. It is appropriate. And it is right. That in the midst of whatever circumstance or trial or trouble or heartache or loss you are experiencing, it is right for you to just take a moment and remember that God has been good. God has been good. I don't care. Somebody asked me how I was doing this morning. I said, look, I'm tired. But I know what? The Lord is good. The Lord is good. And I think that is a good thing to rehearse, beloved. I don't care whatever's going on in your life. Somebody comes up to you and say, how you doing? You can give them a whole litany of problems. But at the end of the problem, you say, ah, but the Lord has been good to me. Because, beloved, he has. He has. He has been good to you. Because if you have experienced any moment in this life of peace and joy and comfort, and it has not been a perpetual hell, then the Lord has been good to you. He has been better than you deserve. 
what the psalmist says, right? Psalm 13, verse 6. I will sing the Lord's praises for he has been good to me. That's why I can sing, beloved. That's why I can sing. That's why no matter what else is going on in my life, when I come to church on Sunday morning, I can sing the songs of Zion. I'm not just going to sit there and moan and complain and cry. I'm going to get up and I'm going to sing the songs of Zion because through it all, the Lord has been good to me. Moses knows that. So that's the first thing he does. He appeals to the goodness of God. He says, God, you've been good. You've been good. But not only does he appeal to the goodness of God, but then he appeals to the mercy of God. For he reminded God that it was not because that Israel was good that God had been good. It is not because Israel had deserved goodness from God that they received the goodness of, of God, but it was because God is inherently kind. And it was simply due to the fact that he is a merciful God. For Moses says, beginning in verse 17, he says, Now may the Lord's strength be displayed. There it is. That's that strength. That's that, that's that strong God. In the midst of your sin and unbelief, God is not weak. He is strong. And Moses says, Lord, let your strength be on display, just as you have declared. And where is his strength? He's strong because he is slow to anger. He's strong because he is abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. And yet he is also strong because he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is strong because he punishes his children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And he has every reason and right to do so. Beloved, God didn't save Israel from Egypt. Because Israel was good, because they were moral, because they were faithful. You know this, you know this, and this is what God is, this is what Moses is saying. We know, Lord, that you didn't save us because we were faithful. We know you didn't save us because we were moral. We know you didn't save us because we're good. You saved us because you were merciful. And now, Lord, we ask that you would be merciful still. Continue to be merciful. You have been merciful before. Lord, be merciful again. You have been strong before. Be strong again. Be strong in your love. Be strong in your forgiveness. Be strong in your loving kindness. You know what the Bible says, beloved, in Isaiah 20. 8 and verse 21, it reminds us that God's judgment and his anger is called his strange or alien work. And in other words, God's anger and judgment 
is a righteous anger and judgment. It is a just anger and judgment. It is a holy anger and judgment. But like any good father, God prefers for his children to be the recipients of his goodness. He prefers for his children to be the recipients of his pleasure. He prefers for them to be the recipients of his joy. But when it is necessary and when he has to, he will move in judgment. He will move in his righteous indignation and bring about the discipline and chastisement of his people. But that, beloved, is his strange work. That is his alien work. He wants to overwhelm you with his goodness. The Bible says that it is the goodness of God that leads men and women to repentance. God would have us to see that he's gracious and love us and that would cause us to move away from our unbelief and our sin and trust in him. But when that doesn't work, beloved, the Lord will move in anger. He delights. He delights to forgive. And he delights to forgive over and over and over again. And yet, like any good father, there comes a time where there must be consequences for disobedience, beloved. There must be consequences for unbelief. And the children of Israel in our text had reached that point. They had reached that point. When you see it, when God responds to Moses this time, verses 20 to 38, remember again, that unbelief is a sin, and that sin has consequences. Even forgiven sin has consequences. Did you hear what I said, beloved? Even forgiven sins have consequences. Israel was a forgiven people. After Moses prayed and interceded for them again, notice what God says in verse 20, right? The Lord said to Moses, I have pardoned according to your word. I've forgiven these people, Moses, once again. I've forgiven these people. I have pardoned them according to your word because, Moses, you pleaded and interceded on their behalf once again, God turned his anger into mercy. He turned his judgment into grace. He would not, he would not now, therefore, destroy this nation. He would not, therefore, disinherit these people. He would not, therefore, disregard them and start all over again with Moses. He would not do as he had threatened to do. Israel would survive. And not only would they survive, the 
because God is merciful in responding to the intercession of Moses, they would enter into the promised land. The land would be theirs. God would still give, them, give it to them. Victory would still come. However, beloved, and this is something we must learn, forgiveness doesn't mean that there is no hurt. Forgiveness does not mean that there is no pain. Forgiveness does not mean that there is no injury. Forgiveness does not mean that there is no loss. Sin has consequences. Unbelief has consequences. The murderer may be forgiven and on his way to heaven, but he will spend the rest of his days in prison. The adulterer may be forgiven, but he or she will work all the days of their lives to win back the trust and respect of those who love them. The thief may be forgiven, but that doesn't mean he or she won't get fired. And the disobedient and the unbelieving may be forgiven. But it doesn't mean, beloved, that they now would immediately walk into the blessings and the promises of God, for they have forsaken them for so long. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And this is what the Bible tells us, right? The Bible tells us this in, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Speaking of this very point, the nature of sin and the consequences of it, the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Three things to know about sowing and reaping, beloved. You reap what you sow. You reap more than, what, than, more than you sowed. And you reap later than you sow. You reap what you sow, more than you sow, later than you sow. And this is what the nation of Israel did. They reap what they sow. Numbers, chapter 14, verse 37. The Bible tells us that the ten spies sowed fear and death. And what did they reap? The Bible says that death came upon them. Death came upon them. Because you reap what you sow. But you don't just reap what you sow, beloved. You reap later than you sow. You reap later than you sow. For Numbers chapter 14 and verse 31, the Bible says that the people feared for their children going into the promised land. And so what would happen to them? Ironically, the children that they feared going into the promised land would actually go into the promised land, and the parents who feared for the children would not. Because you don't just reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow. You not only reap what you sow, you not only reap later than you sow, but you reap more than you sow. 
Numbers chapter 14, verse 34. The Bible tells us that the people failed the 40-day trial. And because they failed the 40-day trial, God says, now you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Because you could not be faithful for 40 days, I'm not going to destroy you. Not now. I'm not going to take the inheritance from you. I'm not going to grab a new nation. This will be your land. You won't enter it. Your children will. I'm not taking it from you. You're forgiven. But because you have been, you were faithless for 40 days, you're going to wander for 40 years before your children <clears throat> inherit the land. Beloved, the writer of Hebrews reminds us <clears throat> that this is a sobering account for us. For it tells us that today, if you would not harden your heart, if you would this day believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and not harden your heart as the nation of Israel did in the wilderness, for to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? To whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? But to them, those, Lord, who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Beloved, sin has consequences. And sometimes those consequences are even death. And the sin of unbelief has consequences. And if you fail to walk in the light of God's joy and the abundance of his promises, there will be consequences. You do understand that Christ died for sin. That Christ even died for unbelief. And I don't know this morning. I don't know this morning where everybody is. I don't know where you are as far as believing God. But I'm here to tell you this morning that I don't care where you are. Okay? I don't care where you are this morning. I don't know how many times God will forgive you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how many times you got left to walk in obedience, disobedience, to walk contrary to faith. I don't know how many times God will forgive you. But I do know, beloved, that he will forgive you today. He will forgive you now. Now, beloved, I am serious about this. I don't know how many times he's going to do it. Because if you walk out of here and not trusting the Lord, today may be the last time. You may not hear this again. Today may be the last time. You may walk out of this building and that is end. I don't know. 
I don't know how many times. I don't know how many times the Lord is going to strive with you. I don't know how many times the Lord is going to forgive you. But I do know is that if you have life in your limbs and you have breath in your lungs right now, he will forgive you today. You got one more chance right now. You got one more chance right now. He will forgive you today, beloved. I want you to know that the Bible is clear. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the consequences of sin are death. But there is a gift from God. That is eternal life for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And today is the day, beloved. And now, now, now is the time. Pray, pray, pray. Lord, I want to believe. I want to believe. Perhaps you pray like I often pray. Lord, help my unbelief. You know, Lord, I battle with it. Remove it from me. Be strong on my behalf. Come in your mercy and, and grace and build me up. Cause me to see, not with the eyes of my head, but with the eyes of my heart, that I may once again believe and walk in faith. Today is the day, beloved. And now is the Time. Lord, I believe. Help, help, oh Lord, help my unbelief. Help, oh Lord. And the Lord is faithful. He is good. And He is kind. And all those who call upon Him receive life now and life everlasting. Today is the day. Now is the time. Call upon the Lord Jesus and believe. Let's pray.